If you're new or visiting with us, um, this is what we're all about. Number one, read it with me. That's right. So all of us have a story of being lost, and all of us have a story of being found. And it's important that we know both stories, that we understand that, that we have deep brokenness within us, but we don't, we don't stay there, right? We're, we're moving out of that into freedom. It's interesting, the, um, when people look at you as you get to know Jesus, from the outside looking in, what they see is they see a person with a sign over their life that says under construction, but they also see you getting better. But from a subjective standpoint as a Christian, it always feels like there's something else wrong. Does it, does that, can you resonate with that? What you discount is the fact that the 35 things in the last year and a half that were wrong have now been healed and transformed. And so the hope that we have is that, yes, we're always in a place of coming to Jesus with our brokenness. And at this exact same time, we're always in a place where Jesus is healing our brokenness and helping us walk and live in freedom. Amen? That's what we believe. Second, read it with me. Trust in our risen Savior. Not performance, not pretending, not acting, not demanding that others be perfect while you are not, not judging, but trusting. Where you'd say, Jesus, you're alive right here, right now in this place, and I'm going to put the weight of my life on you. I'm going to wait I'm not going to freak out and act that hasn't worked well in the past. I'm going to wait. I'm going to listen. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey. I'm going to follow your directions because where you say I should go actually always works out for my best. Amen? Third, bring restoration so that you would see that you are the answer to people's prayers in your family's life, in your neighborhood, in your community. You are the answer to people's prayers. And the Holy Spirit wants to use you powerfully to be the answer to people's prayers. You and I get to be Jesus with flesh on. Y'all, being a Christian means that we always get to wear the Santa hat. Remember that at Christmas? Who's going to wear the Santa hat this year? Do you do this in your family? You don't do this? Y'all, buy a Santa hat. Buy a Santa hat. And one person gets to put the Santa hat on, and they get to give the gifts. And it's the best on Christmas morning. Right? Rather than, I don't know, what do you want to do next? Is there more coffee? Right? But someone gets to put the Santa hat on, and then you as Santa get to take the gift, and then you get to give it. You didn't buy the gift. You didn't wrap the gift half the time. But you get to be the gift giver. That's what restoration is. That's what change for a dollar is. That's what volunteering means. That's, that's, what, that's what we get to do. We get to wear the Santa hat all year round. Is that okay with you? I, I'm, there's, some, there's like nine of you that have energy, and the rest of you need more sleep. So I'm just going to keep on yelling. Okay. Uh, here is the, here's the choice that we make that corresponds to hope beyond our brokenness, trust in our risen Savior, and restoration for your community. Read this with me. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God. Choosing to seek Jesus first and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for protection right now. Awaken us. God, we bind up and mute everything opposed to Christ that would be seeking to interfere with this morning's sermon, this morning's worship, our time with you. This is our time with you, Jesus. Protect us. We also lift up to you the 90,000 plus people who are forced out of their homes in Santa Rosa from because of the Kincaid fire. Pray protection upon their homes, upon their very lives. Lord, help. And for all those Christians this morning that do not have power, that churches that uh, are not meeting, we pray your protection and blessing and your peace upon them all. And for those, Lord, meeting in the dark this morning, may your spirit rest especially so upon them. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in, in John 18.33, this is last week, um, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Do you remember Pilate's response? He kind of explodes in anger. He says, am I a Jew? Like, what, what, why do I care? And Jesus says, well, was, was, sorry, I'm getting mixed up. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says this, oh, was that your idea? Or did, or did someone... Did someone give you that idea? And then Pilate explodes and says, I'm not a Jew. Pilate, at this point in his conversation with Jesus, is thinking a couple of things. He's thinking, number one, this man is no king. He's from Galilee. He has an accent. Everybody from Galilee had an accent. Did you know that? In Acts chapter 2, they say you can, he's from Galilee. You can tell by his accent. I don't know if it was southern. I don't know what it sounded like, but I'm just imagining, right? So they, so they have an accent. But more importantly, Jesus, the Jewish carpenter, has zero political power. He has zero money. He has zero influence. And he's claiming to be the king. And so Paul is, or Pilate is thinking this. Look, uh, this is ridiculous. Maybe the masses think that this guy um, is somehow some Messiah-like, king-like figure. But for Pilate, the only person that he wants to please in his life is Caesar. Right? He is a slave to the Roman state. And Pilate also knows, having worked, he worked in Israel for over a decade, um, just about 10 or 11 years. And Pilate knew, even though he was kind of insensitive to it, he knew that, um, that Jews wanted a Messiah, and that that Messiah would eventually um, save Israel by kicking the Romans out of power. And so Pilate did things to kind of rub their nose in it. He, he brought in standards into Jerusalem that had Caesar's image on it, and the Jews freaked out. And when he minted coins, he had his face on them. We found the coins uh, in Israel, and of course the Jews freaked out about it. Um, and so uh, Pilate is in these interactions with Jews, he's really kind of kind of grind the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders face in the reality that Rome is in charge no matter how much they're wishing or longing for a Messiah. Does that make sense? And so Pilate is also being a little bit spiteful here because he wants to get back at the Jewish leaders who've woken him up at 4.30 in the morning to have, them, have Pilate kill an innocent man. Remember, Pilate still needs coffee at this point in the narrative, okay? 
So here's where we were left off last week. John 18, 38. Read this with me. Pilate has just interviewed Jesus. He's thinking maybe Jesus needs to take his meds because he's claiming to be a king, right? Even though he's kind of beat up and disheveled. So Pilate goes out and says to the Jewish leaders, 4.30 in the morning, still not much coffee. Here it is. Read this with me. I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. You can just hear the irony and sarcasm dripping in Pilate's voice, this king of the Jews. And notice what Pilate is saying. Do you want me to release your king? Pilate is basically saying, look, I have all the power here. I can kill or release your king if I want to. So, so guess who's in charge? I am. The leaders cried out, though, verse 40, the leaders cried out, uh, not this man, not Jesus, but Bar-Abbas. It's not pronounced Barabbas. It's Bar-Abbas, because it's two words. The second word is Abba. Do you know that word? It means means Papa, Daddy, literally the most intimate term that you can have for your father. Bar means son of. Barabbas is son of the father. Now, Barabbas was a robber. The Greek word there is lestes. It means robber, thief, terrorist, even murderer. So the Jewish leaders would rather release Bar Abbas, a son who uses the same tactics as the father of lies, rather than the true son of our true heavenly father. The irony couldn't be more real. Let me just pause here for a moment and say this. Our culture is, is interestingly changed over the past 10 years. Um, in, in that we now live in a superhero culture. Our heroes that our kids are growing up with are all superheroes. And every single one of these superheroes uses the exact same tactics that Barabbas uses, where we'd use violence for the cause of good. This is not how the kingdom of God works. Violence and terrorism is never the Jesus way. Just be, be careful who your heroes are because who your heroes are will determine who you root for, who you aspire to be, who you vote for, and how you think this world should be made into a better place. And Barabbas was a guy who said, I want the world to be made into a better place and I'm going to use any means possible, thievery, violence, dissension, overthrow, political overthrow, to get that to happen. Does that make sense? So just be careful as a Christian. I'm not saying to vote for a Democrat or a Republican, right? Because they're both kind of the same. I'm just saying I'm a political atheist. I don't believe politics changes anything. Picking up what I'm putting down? Yes, just be careful who your heroes are. 19.1. Ready? Here it is. Read with me. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. 
Jesus is flogged, which means that all the skin from his shoulders to the back of his knees is ripped off his body with a whip of nine leather bands, each band holding a lead ball, multiple lead balls, to bruise the skin. And on the end were bits of metal and glass so that when the balls would hit the skin to bruise it and when it would be dragged across the flesh, then, then it would rip the flesh away. And Jesus was struck 39 times. 40 times would kill a man. And so instead of this being execution, it was just a flogging because it was done 39 times. The crown of thorns, the thickets there, the thorns are about two inches long, was beaten into his head with a staff. He was punched in the face. Purple robe, the royal color, is placed on him as a sign of mocking, but also a way to staunch the bleeding. Pilate hopes that this will be enough, that this horrific beating, as Jesus is presented to the Jewish leaders, that they would see this Galilean carpenter, a bloody mess, that they would say, okay, that's enough. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I'm bringing him to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So I've punished him just because you want blood, but I still find no guilt in him. Verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, read this with me. That word behold is a command. It, it's the word look. Look at this man. Look at him. No, really look at him. He's suffering. He's destroyed. He's no threat. By the end of the day, he'll most likely be dead. Jesus at this point is in total shock. He's lost a tremendous amount of blood. He's terribly thirsty. He can barely stand. He doesn't say anything in this interaction because he literally can't. Verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, read this with me, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Every time the Jewish leaders are saying, Crucify Jesus, Pilate is saying, I don't want to. This man's innocent. Pilate is trying to force them into the responsibility of killing an innocent man. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, well, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because, read it with me, he has made himself the son of God. So Jesus has claimed to be God, which is blasphemy. And the Jews say, if this happens, blasphemy is punishable by death. Now, this gets Pilate's attention. Um, Pilate was concerned that Jesus might have been a political revolutionary, but if you're claiming to be God, that's not a political revolutionary. That's a deep theological uh, claim. And there's something about the way that Jesus has handled himself this entire time. No begging. No insults. No threats. Let's read Pilate's response. Read this with me. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Afraid. Shaken to the core. Pilate was deeply impacted by Jesus from this moment on. 
Pilate will work from this moment on to free and save Jesus. But the leaders in Israel know that Pilate has a weak spot, and that weak spot is pleasing Rome. As a provincial governor, he's basically a governor of a state. Pilate also has to send all the taxes back to Rome. He has to make sure that there's no revolutions in Israel. He has to make sure that um, he pleases his masters. Pilate is in middle management in the Roman government. And, and so the Jewish leaders strike at this core weakness, this chink in Pilate's armor. Verse 12, read this with me. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate's thinking, dang it, they read the bylaws. So Pilate, Pilate is forced to make a decision. In the next couple of verses, Pilate is going to take Jesus. Now that he knows that the Jews can manipulate and get and send it, they can, all they have to do is call headquarters and say, do you know what Pilate's doing? There's people claiming to be the king of Israel, the king of Rome, and Pilate's not doing anything to stop it. So Pilate doesn't want that kind of bad press with his bosses. And so Pilate then takes Jesus from his house to the court where Pilate sits down on the dais as a judge about ready to make a judgment. He brings Jesus forward, and this time he says something different. Verse 14, he said to the Jews, it's about 6.30 in the morning now. Pilate's had a little bit more coffee. This is the second time he's commanded the Jewish people and the leaders to do something. What has he commanded them to do? Behold, that means look, see, understand, really grasp who it is that's standing before you. Look. But he doesn't just say, behold, the man. What does he say now? Wait, there's an exclamation mark. You're saying it like, um, like do you want fries with that? <laughs> Come on, say it again. Behold, your king. What is Pilate doing? Well, first, he's forcing everyone to see, to behold two things. First, that Jesus is a man, a human being. And second, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And that third, Jesus, this man, this king of the Jews, has endured profound suffering on the behalf of his people, the people who are screaming for his death, and as the king, he's not uttered a single word in his defense or called or texted his supporters to say, come break me out of this place. Behold, look at your king. What kind of king is he? I want to come back to this point. So hold it. Hold that there. What kind of king is Jesus? But there's a momentum to the story I don't want to lose. Verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your third time? Pilate has said this word fourth time in a matter of uh, the same conversation. And the chief priests answered this, we have no king but Caesar. 
So Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat. He's asking the people to affirm the sentence of death. They do. And the chief priests, irony of irony, horrific horror beyond horrors, the chief priests would be the ones who would actually crown the king of Israel to be the king. And what do the people who are in charge of the coronation of the king of Israel say? We have no king but Caesar. Be careful who you root for. At this point, Pilate gives up. He's like, I'm stuck. And so sitting at the judgment seat, he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Verse 16, so he delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. It's a 300-pound beam of wood. He's dragging it through the streets of Jerusalem up the hill. They're heading outside the city where the accursed experience death. Of course, Jesus falls. You know this. Simon Cyrene is pulled in to, to take the weight. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is Aramaic, is called Golgotha, where they crucified him. They drove spikes in between his wrists, right at the bundle of nerves, and in, in between his ankles and his tibia onto the wood beam. Uh, crucifixion wasn't about blood loss. It was about suffocation and it forced whoever was crucified to pull themselves up by the only leverage points they had, which were the nails driven into their limbs so that they could take a breath. It was so excruciating, the pain that, that this person endured. I, I use the word. This pain was so bad that they invented a word for the pain, and the word is literally from the cross. And in Latin, that's ex- Crucio, excrucio, excruciating. Excruciating literally means from the cross. The pain that Jesus endured. And while the people look upon Jesus, they notice something odd. Pilate has made one more statement. Verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And they begged him, take it down. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. So I think Pilate sees two things about Jesus and his crucifixion that maybe we miss. I've, I've often wondered why we have so much information about Pilate within the Gospels, like the detailed conversations between Pilate and Jesus, some of which are in public, but most of which are behind closed doors in private. How, how do we get this information? We even have a record of Pilate's wife having a dream in Matthew chapter 27. Like how, how do we know this? And I have a theory. I have no way of proving this. But I'm suspicious that Pilate and his wife were deeply changed by his interaction with Jesus, maybe to the point of believing in Jesus uh, or to the extent that he was willing to speak with Peter or one of the disciples when Pilate retired just three years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Pilate retired in Rome. He stayed in Rome. And there's something that tells me that all of these private conversations, there was, had to be conversations between Pilate and the writers of the Gospels. So what are the two things that Pilate sees? 
Well, at first glance, Pilate wants us to see this, right? Jesus, the suffering man. Behold the man. That's right after Jesus is flogged. Jesus has a body. He's suffering. And still Jesus, the man, chooses, chooses to endure this suffering even to the cross, right? So he goes to the cross. So why does Pilate, Pilate want us to see this? Why is John emphasizing this conversation between Pilate and Jesus in such detail? Behold the man. Behold the man. And here's my theory. It's because Jesus chooses the excruciating pain. Jesus chooses to suffer. It's Pilate wants us to see, John wants us to see, that Jesus is a man who chooses suffering. Why? Why would Jesus do this? To be an example? I don't think so. I know that for myself, the weight of my own desires and history shapes my life far more than the weight of another person's inspiring example. Can you relate? I mean, I love inspiring examples. They're fantastic, but they really don't change my life all that much. Am I the only one? Am I a jerk because of this? Have you all like modeled your lives after somebody else? I hope not. Oh, that's going to be terrible in second service. I have to go through this again. <laughs> well, so why does Jesus choosing, choose to suffer if it's not to be an example? Uh, well, maybe Jesus is helpless, you'd say. Maybe he just got arrested and he's just He's just caught on it. There's nothing that he can do. He doesn't necessarily want to be an example. He's just, he's been arrested by people, people more powerful for him. But it's interesting, all throughout this entire process, Jesus is choosing to go to Jerusalem. He's choosing to resurrect um, Lazarus, and now he's in the crosshairs. He chooses to go to the city center. He chooses to stick with Judas, who betrays him. He chooses in the garden of Gethsemane, he could have run, he could have fleed. I mean, he knocked over a platoon of soldiers with the, just saying, I am. Jesus is not helpless. I mean, in the conversations with Pilate, he said over and over again, look, if I wanted to get out of here, I could, right? He commands two legions of angels, right? Hundreds of thousands of angels. Two angels destroyed two major cities, So do you think Jesus is helpless? No, I don't think he was helpless. So why does Jesus choose to suffer for us? What's the final alternative? I think the alternative is this. He chooses to suffer and chooses to die on the cross to accomplish something. He's accomplishing something there. He stayed through the beatings. He stayed through the 39 lashes. He stayed on the cross until it killed him. He stayed there. Why? It's for you. That's why. For you. He could have saved himself, but he didn't. He chose to stay. He volunteered till he died for you and me. Tom Allen is a former army ranger. When, uh, when the 1998 movie Saving Private Ryan came out, everybody said to Tom, you got to go, you got to go, you got to go. And Tom was like, I don't want to go see combat. I've had enough of this in my life. But everybody said, you got to go. And so Tom goes, okay, I'll, I'll go. 
And he watched the movie and then he wrote an article about what it was like for him, a combat veteran, an army ranger, to watch Saving Private Ryan. These are his words. Tom writes, quote, I was extremely proud of Saving Private Ryan until the last minute of the movie. As the movie began, I was proud watching the rangers take Omaha Beach. And the storyline begins when they receive a mission to go deep into enemy territory to save this Private Ryan. And they get into skirmish after skirmish, and some of them are killed along the way. And they finally get to where Private Ryan is holed up, and they say, come with us. We've, kind of, we've come to save you. And Private Ryan, do you remember this in the movie? He says, this is Matt Damon. He says, I'm not going anywhere. I have to stay here because there's this big battle coming up. And if I leave my friends, they're all going to die. And what do the Rangers say? They say, okay, we'll stay here and fight for you. And if you remember the movie, they stay and they fight and it's gory and it's hard and almost everyone dies except Private Ryan. And Tom Allen writes, at the end, one of the main characters, right? There's Woody on the left. You're allowed to laugh. Woody from Toy Story. Did you know that Tom Hanks, according to the Gallup polls, is the most trusted man in America? He could win the presidency right now. Anyways. Tom Hanks never dies in movies, but in this movie, he's going to die. And Tom Allen writes this. He said, Tom Hanks is sitting on the ground, and he's shot, and he's dying, but the battle has been won. And Private Ryan leans over to, to Tom Hanks' character, and everyone in the theater is crying because of Tom Hanks, because, because Woody is dying, right? But Tom Allen writes this. I wasn't crying because Tom Hanks' character was shot. I was crying because of what he said. It was so terrible. Private Ryan bends down and Hank's character says, earn this. And the reason, Tom Allen writes, the reason that made me so angry is that no ranger would ever say, earn this. Why? Because the ranger motto for the past 200 years has been this, sua sponte. Next slide, Sydney. Sua sponte. And sua sponte means this. I choose this. I volunteered for this. So when Private Ryan bent down, if Hank's character was really a ranger, he would have said, sua sponte, I choose this. This is free. You don't have to pay anything for this. I choose to give up my life for you. So what did Pilate see? What does John want us to see? Well, when you look at Jesus on the cross dying there, what you do not hear Jesus saying is, earn this. Jesus doesn't say, I've given you everything. Now you need to gut it out for me. No. What you see Jesus on the cross saying to you is this, sua sponte. I choose this. I volunteered for this. You don't have to pay anything for this. All the pain and punishment you deserve, I freely choose to endure. And all the honor I deserve for my perfect obedience, I now freely give to you. That's the first thing Pilate wants you to see. The second thing that Pilate wants you to see, John points it out, it's this. Jesus, read it with me. Jesus is your king. Let's say Jesus is my king. Ready? Jesus is my king. Hmm. Now, um, this doesn't, maybe doesn't resonate with many Americans or Western Christians because we don't have kings anymore. But it should. 
but not for the reasons you think. Can I explain? Those are my favorite points. Let me tell you why this is significant. You don't know the answer, but I'll explain it. Ready? Here it is. That's another great tactic when someone asks you a question, you'd say, oh, I'm glad you asked me that. And then you answer the question you want to answer. It's a brilliant move. Okay. So the greatest hurdle we Westerners have, um, or the greatest hurdle we Westerners claim to have in believing in God, the single greatest complaint we have against believing in God is this. If God were so good and all powerful, why is there so much suffering in the world? Sound familiar? Okay. It might not seem like it, but Pilate is giving you the answer to this question, and John is highlighting it so that you may truly behold or see or understand the incredible, incredible truth that Jesus is revealing to answer this lament. So let's break this complaint down so that you and I can be on the same page. This complaint argues that we should not believe that Jesus is God nor trust that God is good because there is so much suffering. Did I get it right? Okay. You picking up what I'm putting down? All right. Notice first that the complaint is first defining a moral category. Suffering is evil. And it's the opposite of good. Right? That's the first step. This complaint is saying what is evil and what is good. The moment that you assert that suffering is evil or that God is not good because there is suffering, you've introduced the idea of a moral law, of a law that's outside of of reality that exists that we can all point to that says this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, this is, per this is, this is a blessing, and this is evil. Y'all picking up what I'm putting down? Now, that doesn't make much sense if you're arguing against the existence of God, because if God doesn't exist, then we're just a bunch of random atoms and particles that somehow, by happen chance, manage to coalesce into cells that began to, you remember the twinkle, twinkle, little star, right? Twinkle, twinkle, little star, I don't wonder what you are. You're the cooling down of gases, forming into solid masses. <laughs> so if that's all we are, is just random stuff, right? Space dust that has somehow miraculously formed into this thing that we call life, then there's no such thing as a moral law. We're happenstance. Yes? That's what the world wants you to believe, right? But the world is using an argument, says that there is such thing as a moral law, and because there's good and there's bad, God can't be good because bad things happen. Can you see the inconsistency in that? See, the thing about the moral law is that everybody knows that the moral law is real. In fact, the people that don't believe that the moral law is real, we diagnose them. You know how we diagnose them? They're called psychopaths. And we put them in jail. Because they don't believe that there is a moral law. 
And where does the moral law come from? Well, this argument says that the moral law comes from who? God. The moral law comes from the moral law giver. And the power and legitimacy of this complaint is that when a person is hurt, when someone I love is hurt, when I am hurt, there must be another person who will take responsibility. And ultimately, that person is the moral law giver. Because if you're the moral law giver and you've said this is good and this is bad, in order for you to be good, that means that you have to prevent bad things from happening. That's the power of this complaint. We need a person to pay the price for all of this suffering. And not just any person. We need the person in charge because we're not mad that evil exists. We're mad that persons that we love are hurt. And therefore, we demand a person to take responsibility for that hurt. Picking up what I'm putting down? Make sense? Once you define what is good and evil, you've established that there's a moral law. Once you've established that there's a moral law, you will find yourself searching for a moral law giver to take responsibility for what has happened in your life. And who is the moral law giver in every single society before modernity started in the 1880s? There was one person and every society who was the moral law giver, the king, the king. So what is Pilate wanting us to see? What is John, the author of the gospel, working so hard for us to see? Jesus is your king. And when your king, Jesus, sees the suffering in your body and in your life, the suffering of the people, the persons whom you deeply love, your king knows that saying nice words won't mean a thing. Your king knows that an argument about the good that suffering can do in your life will, is cold comfort at best and insulting no matter what. So Jesus, your king, chooses he chooses, he chooses as a man, as a person. Your king chooses to endure your pain. He chooses to die an excruciating death from the cross. Why? To love you, to earn your trust, to melt your heart, to join you in the pain and sorrow of your life to enter into that feeling of helplessness and grief, to relate how you've been wounded and abandoned and betrayed, and at the same time to rescue you, to forgive you, 
to grant you every good thing he's earned so that it's credited to your account so that when you stand before God, he looks on you and says, sees Jesus' righteousness and all is well. The relationship is reconciled to adopt you to keep on choosing you for all eternity, to simultaneously be the answer to your deepest lament and your deepest hope. To save you. Do you see Jesus? Look, behold the man. Look, behold the king. So is this the kind of king you can trust? With your week? With your family? With your diagnosis? With your need? Can you trust him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that the greatest need that we have is to know whether or not you're really good that you've answered that. You didn't stand at our suffering at a distance, but you came near and you endured what we've endured. And so, Jesus, we place our hearts in your care. We trust you with wildfires we trust you with brokenness in our own life. We trust you with what's next. We trust you with the own, the, our own horror which has transpired. We trust you with our kids and our grandkids, our businesses, our hopes for a better job, our hopes for a better life. We trust you with it, Jesus. We hand it over to you. And thank you for choosing us, even when we're fickle, even when we don't choose you. Thank you for keep on choosing us. We love you, Lord. I pray your blessing upon the hearts of each person here today. Bless and seal the words that we've sung and your word that has been spoken and proclaimed over their hearts. Bless them in Jesus' name. Protect them this week. And all God's people said,